We're looking at uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 17 through 24. Pastor Jerry will be preaching from that today. So Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Thank you. May you be seated. Good morning. This morning I'd like to talk to you about escaping those old patterns in your life. You know, the, when, we, uh, when we fail the Lord as Christians, it's not usually that we're going into some new, exotic, uh, uncharted path of sin. We're normally just drawn back into the old sin patterns that, that we've had all of our lives. And then, of course, uh, the devil and our flesh and the world can entice us to take it where we've never been before, but usually we're just drawn back into old sin patterns. And uh, so this morning I want to talk to you about, as one of the... Uh, the the pastors, preaching pastors, I'd, I'd like to just talk to you about what our job is for you to teach you how to live the Christian life. First of all, teach you how to be saved. And then once you're saved, how to live the Christian life. I'd like to ask you to pray for me. Again, we've already prayed, but let's do it one more time. Pray that the, the Lord will have control of my mind and my speech this morning. Our Father, thank you for everyone here. I ask you, Lord, that you give me words to say and, and everyone here uh, ears to to receive what you have to say to them. Lord, I pray that you just help us to make a little bit more progress in the spiritual life, growing in our faith together. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, uh, Jeff faithfully took us through the scriptures of verses 11 through 16 that shows how our Lord, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts, uh, gifted men is what he gave to the church. And these guys are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And the, the goal of that is to build up the body of Christ so that we have the unity of faith and uh, you know, what we believe and how we believe together and, and a sort of a similar experience together that leads to a corporate maturity. And that makes us less vulnerable doctrinally. That's what our guys are doing so well uh, throughout the year, teaching the theological equipping class so that you know what you know, you know what to believe so that you're not vulnerable to every wind of doctrine. And uh, as the body of Christ here grows more and more in depending on Him as our life source, and as we become more integrated with all of the members functioning, contributing what we do according to our giftedness, we as a church develop into sort of a spiritual life system, building up uh, the church in love. But it's the, the body that builds up the body. 
And the purpose of these gifted men is to come alongside the members of the church and exhort them and encourage them and equip them so that they can live the Christian life and, and they can do the work of the ministry, you see. The, I, I was just so blessed as a young pastor, young minister, uh, to have a, a great mentor. And he, was, he seemed always to be studying me, to know how to stimulate me to love and to good works. And he, he was like a, an array of these gifted men. He was, I could always see that he was compelled to do what he did. He was like an apostle who was sent. And I would hear from him. He would have me in his office. He sat in this big rocking chair that, that was uh, made out of rosewood and wicker. And he would lean forward in it to speak into my life. And he'd stop rocking and he'd lean forward. And he'd say, now Jerry, I'm going to say something to you. It may seem hard, but I want to help you. And he, he would speak like a prophet. He was sent like an apostle. He'd speak like a prophet. And then I would watch him and he would tell me uh, regularly, I, he would say, I don't have the gift of evangelism, but he did it more than anybody I ever knew. I remember standing in line at a restaurant and a, a doctor of pathology who was actually uh, one of Linda's professors was there with us. We were waiting in line to get into this Mexican food place in Plano. And uh, this guy ended up being an adjunct professor at Dallas Seminary, and he just wanted to talk theology, and he wanted to ask Brother David what he thought about the Nephilim, you know, and uh, Swedish is a dynamic equivalent of how many angels could dance on the head of a pin kind of question. And uh, Brother David seemed not to even uh, hear him, and he turned to the people in front of us and asked them about their faith in Christ. And I followed him around Oak Cliff and just saw him go from door to door to door, lovingly telling people about Christ. And he would, he would correct me. I, I would want to argue with people. You know, if they told me they were this or that, I, I would want to say, how can you believe that? And he would say, come on, Jerry, that you're not helping anything. Come on, come on. But I saw him with this compulsion being sent and, and I heard him and I felt the, the prophetic voice from him and I saw him share his faith. And then, of course, he was a pastor teacher par excellence. I mean, that's what he did all the time. And that's what your guys here, are, these four guys, they want to do is they want to uh, teach you the truth of the gospel, the truth of theology so that you're, you're, you're strong and you're not vulnerable to false doctrine. But they want to they want to study you and see you at work, and they want to come alongside of you and say, that's great, that's great, how can I help, how can I encourage, and, and, and they want to be all of those things. They want to exemplify being sent, they want to exemplify speaking prophetically, they want to exemplify sharing their faith, they want to exemplify being a pastor and a teacher. And, and that brings us to this passage today, where Paul does it, he just has a sort of a uh, a, a, a hard right turn here and you see it with uh, this the way he, he just gets really sober minded and, and in this transition he says now this I say and I testify in the Lord and of course we read that in English and like Mike uh, Boss just said it's really easy for us just to pass it by and not pay attention to it because it's Paul you know and this can just sound like the, uh, the rhetoric of religion, you know, just another a way that you just 
turn to another topic, but Paul says this, now this I say, and, he's, and I testify, which is kind of court kind of language. You know, he's saying, I, you know, I, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Listen up, I'm about to give testimony that's going to change everything. Pay attention to this. Now this I say, it's an emphatic declaration. And he goes on to show that it has authority. It's not just his opinion. Now this I say in the Lord. I'm not just talking. You know, you heard about the little boy sitting by his mother in a little country church out in East Texas. And the pastor's telling some wild illustrative story. And the child said, Mama, is that really true? And she said, no, son, he's just preaching. <laughs> you know, I like laughing at my own jokes. I really enjoy them. <laughs> Paul is not joking here. He's giving an authoritative declaration. It's an emphatic declaration. He wants to get their attention. And then he just says something that's really simple. He says, in essence, you're no longer pagan. If you looked up the word pagan in, in the dictionary, the first thing it would tell you is it's a pejorative term. It's very offensive. It's like the, the P word. You should never say it. It seems to, if you say pagan, it's already comparative. And you're saying that you're right and everybody else is wrong. So don't ever use the P word. Well, pagan just means it's kind of like the Jewish the, the, uh, uh, it's kind of like the, the word that Jews would use referring to heathen. They're just people that don't know anything about God. They don't have exposure to Yahweh. They don't have exposure to Israel's history and they're, they're left to just speculate and to, and to create gods after their own image and, and uh, the, you know the, the word in uh, Hebrew, one of the words in Hebrew for the idol is hevel, which just means emptiness or breath or, or waste or futility. And that's what they're left to. And he says, look, the first thing I want to do, now that I have your attention with this emphatic declaration, this authoritative declaration, now that I have your attention, I want you to know that you are not the same. If you're born again, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. You're, you're, you're not the same. You're no longer ignorant. You're no longer outside of the faith. You're no longer uh, a mere man or a mere woman. I, he says, this I say, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Uh, and so uh, it should get their attention. Now, I, I would want to say that to us all, that if you're born again, you're not just another American, you're not just another citizen of McKinney, you're not just another whatever. You are supernaturally different. Something has happened in your life that has changed you eternally and you need to get your GPS out and see where you are in time. You know, you've been born for such a time as this and you need to see where you are, whether you are in Adam or you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are of another world, so to speak. You are seated with Him in the heavenlies and you have eternal life and you, every moment of this life has profound divine purpose. And so you are no longer Gentiles, but we are tempted, Satan tempts us, again, not to go into new exotic transgressions, but to fall back into the old patterns. And he wants to tell them not to do that. Your pastors will do that with you. They won't just come up to you if you're acting out, if you, uh, you know, it's just tragically, we see all kinds of sin in the church and it's because people 
get casual about their Christian life. They stop reading their Bibles. They stop praying. But the main thing they do is they stop relating to the church where they have that reciprocal accountability. And we see all kinds of things. And your pastors, if, if you're one of those who happens to fall into some kind of terrible sin, they won't come up to you and just say, would you please stop that? They will remind you that you're no longer a Gentile. You're no longer outside of the community of faith. That you have been born again. Your heart has been circumcised. You have been made anew. And so you shouldn't walk that way anymore. But we still have to live in this secular world. We have to live in a fallen world. And we're always pressured not to be too religious, you know. Not to be too fanatical. We, we want to mitigate our, our walk with Christ so that people will receive us and not think that we're religious, crazy people. Paul says, don't, you know, don't do that. We are, you're no longer Gentiles. You're no longer outside of faith. You, in fact, belong to Israel now. You are uh, Jewish in the sense that you are children of Abraham by faith. And you are uh, the Israel of God. And so Paul ends Galatians with saying, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. And so we have been united with Christ. According to Paul in Romans, we've been united with him in a death like his. And we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrected life like his speaking about the future. But we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no, should no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, this is the point. If we've died with Christ, we believe that we'll, we'll also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Today, we have this wonderful privilege as a church to celebrate both ordinances on the same day. Of course, we take communion every Sunday. And it is just one of the greatest blessings for me to do that. To renew my sense of awareness uh, concerning the covenant that I'm in with God through the blood of Christ and just be still before the Lord and thank Him for my sins being atoned for and me being in a clear relationship with Him. But today we get to have a baptism uh, and uh, with this child who will be baptized, we will be laying him down in his watery grave. And when we raise him out, it will be a picture of him being made alive unto God, raised out from among the spiritually dead ones to live a, a resurrected life. And that too is part of our work as pastors to administer these, these ordinances and to teach you every time we do it, to teach you more and more about it. You know, there's a, we resist that death. We, we, we want not to be totally dead. We kind of like to be uh, Christians that are more like zombies than people who are made fully alive. You know, still having a a uh, little smell of formaldehyde on us. I, I smelled that this morning when you were talking about how old I was and how old the church was. I smelled that formaldehyde, you know. <laughs> but uh, people just don't want to die. They, they, uh, you've heard probably uh, uh, the country and western song that was written in, in uh, 1965 
by uh, Loretta Lynn, and it, it said, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And in that song, she was probably just referring to simply that people want to survive, the, 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 the fear of death, the fear of the unknown, you know, just the turning loose of life on earth is hard for everybody. And it is, really, even for good, strong Christians. We, we hate to die. It's just in our nature to want to continue breathing. But she said something profound without meaning to. Everybody wants to go to heaven. All Christians want to have eternal life and security and to believe that we will be with God in, in eternity and forgiven of our sins. But few Christians really want to die as they ought to. My former pastor, who was a mentor to me, really was strongly devoted to the Lord from the time he came to faith around 18 years of age. And when he first got saved, he just had this anticipation of what God was going to do in his life every day, and he was excited about it. But then after a while, he began to see things in his life that really grieved him, primarily anger and jealousy and things like that. And it just bothered him. Nobody really knew it. He preached and was successful in his churches. But he was so depressed about it, he just prayed and prayed. And he, he began to pray, God, I, I pray that you will change me. And if you can't change me, I pray that you'll kill me. And so God answered his prayer in reverse order. God taught him who he was in Christ. He taught him what that baptism meant, that in Christ, in the last Adam, he had been crucified. All that he was apart from Christ was dead and in the grave. And that God had made him alive unto him and had raised him out from among the dead and had enabled him not to give his body over to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness but to present himself to God as one who is alive from the dead and, and he began to have victory by believing that he began to have joy and peace and he began to experience the filling of the spirit just by believing what God said was true about him everybody wants to go to heaven Nobody wants to die, and we've got to realize that we must die. Otherwise, to live life trying to have uh, one foot in both worlds, trying to live so as to please ourselves, and then every now and then live so as to please God is a, is a, is a waste. It doesn't work. Paul says about these pagans, people who don't know Yahweh, people who have no exposure to the God of the Bible, that they live according to the futility of their minds. It's just a waste. You know, you know how frustrating it is to, to work hard and try diligently to accomplish something and then to fail miserably and, and to realize that all of the effort and all of the time, all of the investment of your life that you put into it was just a waste. You know how, few, how, how frustrating that is and how depressing that is. Well, think about that on a, on a spiritual ultimate sense where you stand before God and you look back over your life and you see all that you did, using your mind, concentrating, working hard, doing all that you could just to accomplish things and acquire things and experience things and you get to the end and you think, wow, that's just kind of a waste, wasn't it? I may have told you this story, I think I have, but there's an older lady named Alma Chesney and when we moved from the old place, we had an acre and a half down the road 25 years ago. They'd had it since 1908. The building was built in 1908. It now is in Chestnut Square, the old building, if you ever want to go there. I remember it as a place that smelled like rats and raccoons and skunks. And, uh, uh, and so I've never felt nostalgic enough to go down there and look at it. I've, 
when, when they were hauling it away on the big trucks, you know, they had to get a, a permission from the state of Texas and, and have a route cleared out and lines picked up and they're hauling it away. One of our members was standing out there crying and I was too, but we had both, we had different motives for our tears. I was so happy to get rid of that old building. But uh, Mrs. Chesney uh, was there and she could never make the move from the old place because it had been there since 1908. It had been there since her childhood. We moved into a school and you could just imagine how hard that was for her. There was nothing religious about the school at Glen Oaks Elementary. And uh, she just couldn't do it, so she never came back. But I would go to visit her, and at one point, um, she was dying. She was in a coma, and her, she had a, 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 an advanced directive where they said, you know, do not resuscitate. But her daughter went to court to make them overthrow that and put that feeding tube in her. And she came so close to death that they called in the family, and I remember coming in and standing by the door and seeing the family all gathered around her. And then she didn't, uh, she didn't die all the way. But a few weeks later, when they had her in the recovery place in a uh, part of a nursing home where they, they just watch over you, it's almost like hospice, but she, she came back and she motioned for me. And this lady was as country as she could be. I mean, she had, she had uh, just the sophistication of rural life. That's all she had. She was not articulate at all. But she called me over there and by her bed and she said, Brother Jerry... I have to tell you, I saw things. And, and, you know, she's struggling to tell me what she saw. And she said, what I saw when I almost died made me know that almost everything we do in this earth means nothing. In other words, all of our busyness, all of our thinking, all of our trying to accomplish and accumulate and experience is futile. It's a waste. It's a futility of the mind. And she realized that what mattered, without being able to, you know, express it real clearly, what mattered was what we allow Christ to do through us. And I'll never forget that, that lady. And, and, but anyway, this walk of paganism is something that's just a waste. We all remember Mickey Mantle doing that, saying that Mick, Mickey Mantle, uh, when he died sitting in that, that hospital bed, and somebody's interviewing him, and he said, you know, and he had become a Christian. And he said that he realized that he had, in his words, he had frittered his life away. Now, as an athlete, going for the gusto and doing everything he could with, uh, you know, just partying, you might think that that's the only way to waste your life. But you can waste your life on things that everybody respects. Just doing things that God's not leading you to do. Paul says about this kind of life and about these, this kind of people that they are darkened in their understanding. They have no light. And they're alienated from the life of God. They have no life. You know, the, the, when the Bible speaks about this, us being dead in our trespasses and sins, spiritually speaking, he's about talking about something that is absolute. He's not talking about spiritual, spiritually comatose. They can't experience God. With, in relationship to God, they're dead. And they have no, the Spirit is not in them. And they are not in Christ. There's no life. And they're alienated from the life of God, that experience, because of the ignorance that is within them. They, they don't understand the, the message of grace that is presented throughout the Scripture, showing how man can be reconciled to the Father through his Son, 
how a man can be raised from the dead through Christ's resurrection. But they're culpable in this because there is an ignorance in them that is due to the hardness of their heart. And you know, this is a warning. Paul is saying you can harden your heart against God. You can fall away from God. You can, you can lose some of the light that you have about the, the gospel. You can certainly lose a lot of the experience of God by just having a hard heart toward the things of God. There's no light in them. There's no life in them. There's no love. There isn't, this is an interesting way of putting this. There's sort of a merism here. He says they've become callous. It's like the callous on your fingers. You could slice some of it off and not even feel it, really, because it's just hard and dead. Because they've given themselves up, They're, they are culpable in it. They're not just victims. They have given themselves up to sensuality. You see the merism there. You see the extremes They don't feel, and yet they feel everything. They're given over to just uh, their own experience, and they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And, And that's what our flesh is capable of. That's what the world tempts us with. That's what the devil tries to pull us back into, are those old sins. And this is a warning. Paul says, you don't have to do it. Again, he's not just saying stop that or watch out or make sure or discipline yourself. He, he, he reminds them of what they have been taught. My former pastor taught me for 10 years regularly how to live by grace. And so when, when I sin, even to this day, and I certainly still do, unfortunately, I, I, I feel more remorse over sinning in spite of what I understand than just over the sin itself. You know what I mean? I think I know the way of grace. I know who I am in the last Adam. I know what it means to be crucified, buried, and resurrected. I know what Paul says about reckoning yourself to, do, to, to believe these things. You know, to, and and that's, that makes, it, uh, makes me more culpable, really. He says, but that, this is an interesting that he, thing that he says here to them. He says, with regard to their decision to follow Christ, he, he reminds them. And it's like taking them back to their baptism, you see. This young child is going to be baptized today, and he should spend the rest of his life interpreting what that baptism means. And so he takes them back to when they first came to faith. He says, but that's not the way you learned Christ. It's, very interesting way Paul phrases himself here. He doesn't say you learned about Christ. He said you learned Christ. I'm still unpacking that. I, I still don't really understand that fully. And then he says, assuming that you heard him. And he's not, you know, we, our translators will put, you heard about him. But the about is not in there. There's no preposition in there. Assuming that you heard him, he's saying, assuming that you're really saved. You know, in a room this size, with a crowd this size, there's always people in here who've not yet gotten there. They've not yet done that. But Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And, you, you know, you know if you've heard his voice. You know if, as a shepherd, he has called you through the gospel and you've realized that he was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world that he's 
the one who was raised from the dead to be the Lord over you. And then he says, uh, assuming that you were taught in him and that you were in him when you were taught. He says, and you were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. That's a, that's a big assumption. Otherwise, he might be talking to lost people. But he said, the way you learn Christ, if you really heard him, and if you were taught about your union with Christ, this is what you heard. These decisions of faith. You were taught to put off your old self. And you were taught how? That you are no longer an Adam. Now you're in the last Adam. And all that you were apart from Christ has been crucified and buried. And that's how you put off that old man. By believing that. You were to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life which is corrupt through deceitful desires. You know, I've just got a... Uh, all my iTunes are just filled with kind of nostalgic nonsense. The other day I was playing one of them and I, I, one of our guys said, oh, Jerry, that doesn't sound so good. That might, if somebody heard your ringtone, they might take offense at that, you know. I thought, yeah, that's right. I, I like it because it's nostalgic. It was music of my childhood. And, and so it just makes me think about my childhood. But all of my childhood wasn't good. And, and to, to be drawn back into that and to celebrate that with music is not good. That's why we need one another. These, these young guys still need to rebuke the old guy every now and then. That's the truth of it. That's just the way it is, isn't it? We're to put off the old self. All that we were apart from Christ doesn't mean you cease to be who you are. You, you don't change names and you don't erase your history. But you don't let yourself be drawn back into sin just because it's nostalgic. Because it's corrupt through deceitful desires. And they were taught to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. This is a passive idea. All of these are in the middle voice. Could be passive or middle. Uh, but this, which means nothing to you. Forget I said that. But there is to be a progressive renewal of the mind. And it's something that God does to you. But you have to allow it to happen. It's something that you cooperate with by faith. And we are to put on that new self, created after the likeness of God in truth. We're to have this deliberate embrace of the new man. You know, every day we need to wake up and have this obedience of faith that Paul speaks about in, first, in Romans 1, 5 and 16, 26. The obedience of faith. Almost sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. I mean, we have to obey the truth. And the truth is that Every one of you who has received Christ as Savior is now a crucified, buried, vivified, and resurrected person. And you need to obey that truth by faith. And that's how you deal with the old self so as to put it off. That's how you clothe yourself with Christ so as to put it on. That's how you experience the filling of the Holy Spirit. So today, we have this new identity and this new nature in union with Christ, which should produce an altogether different manner of life. But be aware, Satan always wants to pull you back into those old sin patterns. 
using those old behavioral triggers. And he does it. You know, the things that just may seem precious to you. Going out into the woods is precious to me. I go out into the woods in East Texas, and all of the smells congregate to make me remember. And I think about walking out through the woods and seeing the little animals that I used to see, the little uh, horned lizards. The, I, I still look for them today. I, I, one of my friends said, I see them every now and then. He works on air conditioners. And I, I go through this little piece of land that I have, and I'm looking for them. And I'm looking for things that, that I thought about as a kid. But, you know, not everything I did in the woods was virtuous. Go out there as a kid. <laughs> you know, all of our parents would smoke cigarettes back then. We'd go out there and smoke grapevines. Just act like our, our, our parents would, you know. And you had to really know how to find the good ones. <laughs> So not all of the things out in the woods that make me think about my childhood are virtuous. They can pull you back into sin. You can have those triggers that make you think, oh, listen to that, I love that. And, you know, I've, I've known of people that went to their high school reunion and struck up an old flame and left their wife. I've known that right here in McKinney. Nostalgia, those triggers can pull you back into Things that will dishonor God and will defeat you and make your life seem wasted. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. But we must die. We must die daily. We must believe daily. We must reckon daily that we are crucified with Christ and made alive unto God. We, we must obey our Lord and deny ourselves and take up our cross daily to follow Him. So Paul says, now this I say and teach you in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, as the pagans do, as the heathen do, as do those people who don't know anything about Yahweh. They don't know anything about Israel. They don't know anything about Messiah. They're just left to superstition and to living life as if, as if this were all that there is, all that there ever will be, and so doing everything selfishly to gratify Yourselves. Don't do that. That's why in Romans 6.11 he says this. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. And that word sin is not sins. It's, it's more generic. It's more abstract. It goes all the way back to Adam to speak about the principle of sin that entered into the world. Dead to living independent of God. And that you are alive unto God in union with Christ Jesus. This is a matter of urgency. Every morning it's a matter of urgency. It's a warning about futility. Paul says that those who don't know about God, who don't know God, live in the futility of their minds with no light, with no spiritual life, and with no real virtuous love. And so he says in Romans 6.12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to, to make you obey its passions. And finally, it's a call to fidelity. And that, at that moment, I'd like for our ushers to come forward as we take uh, the Lord's Supper because we want to renew this call to fidelity. You know, uh, in... I think it's uh, uh, verse 1 and verse 16 where Paul says, 
Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? And he says, no, no, may it not be. And then he repeats that in verse 16. Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? We're not. That's not how we're to live. And again, today as you, as, as you watch this baptism, I want you to look at the end of that baptismal font and see the scripture that's there. Romans 6, 11. We can begin to distribute the elements. He says, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Everyone wants to go to heaven. But nobody wants to die. But today, may we pray this prayer, Lord, change me or kill me, so that he can answer that prayer in reverse order.